The Big Law Business Podcast is brought to you by Epic. Stay ahead of the curve with Epic. Gain more traction for the critical legal tasks in front of you today and those just around the corner. Epic delivers expert matter handling along with the accuracy and speed you rely on to outperform your competition. Epic is a global leader in the legal services industry. Epic subject matter experts and technologies create efficiency through expertise and deliver confidence to high-performing clients around the world. Learn more at epicglobal.com. That's epiqglobal.com. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. On today's podcast, how Richard Nixon's years in New York working as a big law partner helped him become president. The years in between 1962 and 1968 are referred to as Richard Nixon's wilderness years. These are the years after he lost the race to become governor of California and before the 1968 presidential election. Scholars and historians haven't spent as much time exploring this period. And because Nixon spent these years as a partner in a large New York City law firm, it was a perfect topic for a legal journalist to explore. Our guest today is Victor Lee. Victor spends his days covering the business of law and legal technology for the ABA Journal, and his new book is called Nixon in New York. I started by asking him about what drew him to covering this period of Nixon's life. You know, I found that the biographies that have been written about Nixon, um, you know, they they talked a little bit about what happened during his so-called wilderness years, you know, when he was between uh, between jobs, I guess, so to speak. But um, I wanted to learn more about what it was like uh, uh, with him as a practicing lawyer, which is what he did from uh, you know for most of that time. Uh, he was a lawyer uh, on Wall Street as, as a senior partner at the firm that became known as Nixon Mudge, and so I wanted to learn more about just what he was like as a lawyer because I think we know plenty about what he was like as a politician. Uh, plenty of people have written about what he's like as a person. Um, you know, and many, many scholars have tried to, you know, try to figure out what made him tick, uh, you know, what made him do the things that, that, uh, that he did. But I didn't see too much, uh, written about just what he was like as an actual lawyer. And so that was kind of what drew me to writing this book. Just was, was just wanting to find out more about that time period. Do you have a sense of why that was largely left aside? Why historians didn't delve into it? You look about all the all the things that he accomplished in his life. I mean, you know, president uh, for uh, you know for six years, I guess, because um, you know he, he had to resign, obviously, in the middle of his second term. But you know, I mean, he won his second term, forty nine state landslide, one of the one of the biggest uh, electoral you know electoral victories that we've ever seen. Um, you know, he accomplished so much as president, and then even going back to his time as vice president, as senator, as congressman. Um, you know, going up to his early life where he, you know, he grew up dirt poor, um, you know, not even being, being able to afford, uh, you know, like little firecrackers that you could buy at like a, at like a, at like a dime store, like not even be able to, being able to afford that and, and, and then reaching the pinnacle of power. So I can kind of understand why that time period, uh, just kind of pales in comparison to what he did before and afterward. Cause you know, I mean, naturally we're drawn to stories about people in power, people, you know, who, uh, who accomplish a lot. And obviously as a president, you know, uh, someone, especially with his profile, he's somebody that if, if you had to prioritize, you know, 
it would probably make sense to focus on his White House years as opposed to what he was doing in private practice. But that being said, I think there was a lot of stuff that happened uh, when he was a lawyer that you know is is, is worth is worth looking at uh, and was worth writing about and really kind of explain a lot about how he got to where he did, which was the White House in 1968. So why was a New York City law firm the perfect place for a former politician with presidential aspirations to sort of bide his time and eventually launch a campaign for president? You know, it was it was common for politicians to go to Wall, go to Wall Street, especially after uh, they lost the big election, which he did in 1960 by the you know, very narrowest of margins to, to Kennedy. You know, Dewey went to um, he he actually he, he went to um, Wall Street after he left the governor's mansion in New York. Started a very successful firm that obviously you know uh, eventually uh, made history as one of the, you know perhaps the largest ever law firm failure a few years ago. And you know, there, Wendell Wilkie went to Wall Street as well. You know, several other like big name politicians like that. Going to Wall Street was kind of seen as what a defeated has been does because uh, you're out of the public eye. You're, you know, you're not, you don't have a electoral, you don't have an electoral base to, to kind of help build, um, build for like another uh, major election. So him going to New York was seen by a lot of people as, okay, he's done, he's finished, he's never going to run for office again. Especially considering how he left the uh, political arena with his, after losing the the gubernatorial race in California, a race that he really should have won, uh, and then giving a very nasty, self pitying spoil sport kind of um, press conference afterward. I leave you gentlemen now, <laughs> and uh, you will now write it, you will interpret it, that's your right. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know, <laughs> just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because gentlemen, this is my last press conference, and I hope that what I have said today well, at least going to Wall Street kind of allowed him to kind of cultivate um, other parts of his uh, of his image and burnish himself as someone who you know, was a statesman, someone who was, um, um, you know, a respected, a respected uh, elder statesman, even though he was still very young. And law firms, you know, um, are a very good base for uh, certain things like getting access to deep pocketed clients, uh, traveling the world. Having very young, very smart people to um, help with with his with his work, and so you know, it ended up being like kind of, kind of the ideal spot for him because he didn't, you know, he was able to kind of stay out of the fights he didn't want to get to, but he was able to kind of still weigh in on on issues from time to time while bringing business to his firm and helping the firm develop and and, and make more money. Was New York the place, or did the did the opportunity at Mudge Rose present itself? Was he considering other firms? He really was stung by uh, what happened uh, in the gubernatorial race. Um, you know, he it was not a close race. He he got beaten pretty badly by a guy that you know wasn't considered to be a very strong uh, incumbent governor. It's Pat Brown, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously looking back now, you know, he's a giant, but back then, you know, compared to Nixon, I mean, Nixon had never lost a race in his life. You know, he was come within like a few a few states of winning the presidency. So that you know that should have been a cakewalk for him, but he was really hurt by that by by, by losing that race. Um, and so going to New York allowed him to um, get away from that. But then also, you know, there was also the cover of um, him saying that okay, well, I can't be a candidate here because Nelson Rockefeller is in charge of New York, and Nelson Rockefeller at that time was one probably his biggest rival in the Republican Party. 
So going to New York allowed him to uh, get access to the firms that he wanted to work with. Um, and Mudge ended up being, uh, you know, the best choice for him because, you know, they, they desperately needed someone of his caliber, someone that could bring in business, someone who could call people and have, you know, that call immediately returned, uh, and someone that could serve as sort of the face of the firm. And how much on his mind is that I, I'll be running again when he joins Mudge? It was pretty much something that was on his mind from the beginning. I mean, he never really gave up his dream of, of, of being president. I mean... Yeah, maybe he knew. Maybe he knew in the back of his mind that it was going to be very, very difficult for him to recover from uh, what happened in '60 and '62, and he definitely understood that he was facing a, a, a long, tough road back. I mean, you know, at that point, you know, JFK is still alive and looking like he's going to easily win re-election in '64. So, and then you never know what could happen after that. So, if if it weren't running for president, he would still want to do something related to public service, serving in the White House, serving in the, you know, as maybe a Secretary of State. So that was still very much on his mind. And one of the reasons why he wanted to go to a law firm was that, um, you know, if he, because he, 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 he had offers from various, various universities, various boards. Uh, I think he even had an offer from Major League Baseball to be commissioner, which that would have been really interesting. But you know, he couldn't, he couldn't still do politics if he did that, because he'd have to, you know, especially if you're if you're in baseball, you know, you can't <laughs> you, know, you can't wait into, uh, you know, uh, uh, senatorial races or campaign for uh, campaign for people if you're if you're if you're running if you're running a, a major league if if you're running the major leagues. So, so that was still very much on his mind. Being in being in like he had he had a common um, he had a very saying that he was fond of that you know he um, he liked being a gladiator in the arena, and so if he couldn't be the main guy, he could still be you know involved. And so that was sort of what he was thinking, that being at a law firm would allow him to still weigh in on political races as much as he wanted to. It would allow him to kind of stay away from local politics and you know state politics that he didn't really care for. Um, and he'd be able to go abroad and, and, and meet with heads of state, meets, meet with um, you know, important business people you know, from other countries and show that he, show that, you know, he had understanding of foreign policy and, and demonstrate his diplomatic skills. And did Mud, did the firm know that's what he was thinking? Did they care? And frankly, was that like partially what they wanted? Well, there's a very interesting story uh, that came out where um, uh, they're on the golf course talking about, you know, just just what what their plans are and whatnot. And Nixon hasn't gotten the offer yet at this point to um, to come aboard. And so one of the partners just straight out asks him, like, you know, are you are you still going to be running for president? Because you know, at your last firm, they told us that. You know, you spent most of your time running for governor. Um, you, you didn't. You didn't spend a whole lot of time generating business or representing clients or whatnot. And that's not really going to fly here. You know, we, we expect you to. You know, if, if you're going to be with the firm, we expect you to be with the firm. Obviously, you know, if you, you know, if you still want to, you know, involve yourself in politics and whatnot, that that's fine because that brings prestige to the firm. It gets the gets the firm's name in the papers. Uh, you know, it's Richard Nixon's firm. It's you know. Uh, whenever, whenever anyone interviews him, they have to put that he's a member of the firm. And so Nixon gave a very kind of cagey answer, like, "Well, if you knew anything about politics, uh, you would know that a politician never gives up his base." And they they took that to mean, well, you know, because he left California, that would mean that he's not he's not going to be able to run for anything anymore. So they kind of took it, they kind of took him at his word that that he was done. But I'm but, but you know, in the back of their mind, they kind of knew that you know he still wanted to be actively involved. But that was part of the appeal of having him because that way he could still be. You know, he could serve as a good face of the firm, someone who could uh, be a good spokesperson and whatnot. And whenever he asked his partners for, you know, things like, 
you know, an increased an increased staff to help them with this um, with this political work, or to hire like speech writers, or to hire you know, I mean, what you know, um, why would why would a managing partner or a senior partner need need a speechwriter uh, unless unless you're you know, especially especially for politics. But they, they indulged him and they let him and, and they, they let him they let him do you know they let him have what he wanted whenever he wanted to take time off from the firm to, to campaign for um, Republicans across the country you know in the sixty six midterms or uh, in the sixty four presidential election when when they were looking at with, with Goldwater at the top of the uh, at the top of the ticket you know they gave him the time off. The man who earned and proudly carries the title of Mr. Conservative, and he is the man who after the greatest campaign in history will be Mr. President, Barry Goldwater. So they definitely knew what they were getting into. It was just, I mean, maybe they didn't think that he was going to, um, you know, run for something immediately or, you know, even win. But, uh, but they definitely kind of felt like, okay, well, we can, we can, we can get, we can get a benefit here. Tell me a little bit more about Mudge Rose. I've looked at in the early rankings that the American Lawyer did, they were in the top 50. I've seen some other things that had them in that top 50 area. Where would they be today? And uh, we can get into what happened. They're not around anymore, obviously. But so where were they then? And what, what was the firm like? So they don't, but they'd always kind of been in that tier of firms that was kind of, that was like, you know, you, if you have Cravath at the very top and you have, you know, um, your firms like that, like your, you know, your, um, you know, your Davis Polks and whatnot, kind of in that, in that, in, in that top tier. They were always a tier below those firms. So, uh, so, so, so they had trouble. They had trouble attracting like the creme de la creme as far as law students, as far as you know, uh, lawyers and whatnot. I mean, you know, they still did pretty well for themselves. They were, uh, they, you know, they managed to um, get a lot of good people there, I and mean, people that ended up, you know, um, people that a lot of people that ended up gravitating toward Nixon. But I mean, one of um, one of his closest, probably his closest friend at the firm, uh, Leonard Garment, who ended up being um, uh, a very prominent um, uh, official in the White House administration, you know, White House counsel, and holding a variety of jobs under Nixon. Um, you know, he graduated from Brooklyn Law School, which, you know, back then, like, you know, most 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 of the um, law firms were, you know, wouldn't even look at a guy with with that kind of a resume. You know, they were they were looking for Harvard. Yale or Columbia, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe even some of the, the you know, maybe even some of the, the, the so-called you know, lesser Ivies. But for for a Brooklyn Law School, you know, guy to, to to ascend to that level, you know, that that so, but, but that kind of showed you what kind of you know that where the firm was that they weren't they weren't they weren't fighting for the very 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 top of the top of the heap as far as um, law students go, but they were getting like a lot of the um, you know people from like these 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 mid-tier schools that would go and, and, and some of them would go and do it very well for them and, and prove themselves. And Garment was one of them. They were a firm that when Nixon joined, they were, they were sort of, uh, in decline because they had had some, um, uh, generational changes and whatnot and some institutional rot had set in. Um, and so they were looking for a guy that could come and just kind of be a rainmaker for the firm, be a public face, be someone that could, um, Open open doors for them and and whatnot, and you know they had a, they had a they, they had acquired a very unflattering na- nickname on on Wall Street. They were known as Mudge, Sludge, Fudge, and Won't Budge. Uh, you know, kind of playing on the reputation as being kind of stuck in the mud. And so uh, Nixon brought them out of that, and they did very well under him. Like he he was getting them business right away, right? Yeah, billable hours shot up. Um, you know the uh, uh, 
whatever, whatever the metrics were promised with partner back then, that, that increased as well. So, um, you know, he brought in clients on his own, like, uh, Pepsi came in with him because they, they owed him, they owed him a lot of, um, a lot of like favors over the years. Their, uh, their CEO was good friends with, with Nixon. So he brought in like some clients from, um, from his law, from his Los Angeles firm as well. So, I mean, he's basically, you know, you know, kind of, kind of what, kind of what law firms would, would be looking for today. You know, a guy with a name, a guy with a book of business, a guy, um, you know, who could, who could, who could, who could bring in more business. He talked about his approach to getting new business by spending time with clients, but never directly asking for it. And you know, saying that you just spend time with clients and they'll eventually come to you. And that sounds like something that's easy to say for a former vice president, right? <laughs> like tell, tell yeah. me about his, what he was, what he did. Yeah. But that's easy to say if you're, if you're Richard Nixon, I mean, it's probably not, you know, if, if you or I were in that position, you know, we wouldn't just be able to just, you know, or your average partner at a major law firm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we would just be able to go to a cocktail party and be like, "All right, come to me." <laughs> um, so, so he definitely had had the luxury of being, you know, someone with a name, someone with with uh, you know with uh, a cachet, someone who was very um, you know someone who people really wanted to wanted to meet and wanted to talk to. But his his his, his approach to business was you know kind of kind of what he was saying, like and uh, you know there's there's an anecdote in the book where he talks about how. The best way to get business is just just be a friend of these people. Just talk to them, you know. Um, just get to know them, but but don't don't like solicit them actively for business. Just you know, just just just, just let, let them know let them know about you know who you are, what your expertise is, you know what you're good at, that kind of stuff. And then and then yeah, they'll they'll come to you when they when they need you. He was a little less uh, charitable and private. He there's a there's a quote in here that he just all he has to do is just tell a bunch of idiots uh, what they want to hear. Uh, just like you know, read things that they could have that they could have found out in the newspaper, and and, and he gets paid for it. Right. I, I never realized how easy it is to make money or something. Yeah. Like, was that, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so 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 that's sort of where you know where his head was at as far as as far as his job and his role on Wall Street. Not to say that he didn't do a good job or that he didn't he didn't uh, do do what he do what he he uh, he was supposed to do for his law firm. But there was a, there was a kind of cynical aspect of it too. So in, in getting ready to talk to you, I looked at Leonard Garment's interview with Charlie Rose from the late 90s when his book came out. Leonard Garment has written a book called Crazy Rhythm. It is about his life. It is about his career as a lawyer. It is also about his relationship with Richard Nixon. Crazy and that seems like such an interesting relationship. Can you, Leonard Garment was Jewish. He was from Brooklyn. He was a Democrat. Like you mentioned, he went to Brooklyn Law School. You know, Tell me about this relationship between the two men. Garment was one of their stars. He was a guy... Um, you know, he kind of fell into law accidentally. He was, um, he actually, law was never his passion. Music was his passion. Well, let's see. Uh, I was a sort of a boy, uh, klezmer, jazz, jazz player. In Brooklyn. Now. In Brooklyn, right. Grew up in a, in a neighborhood, a very, a jazz, uh, rich neighborhood. He, he was a, he was a very good clarinet player and he played in several like jazz bands, like, you know, during during his uh, during his life, but when he was young, when he was Australian, he actually played with some played with some well-known people and whatnot. He was actually in a band with um, with um, um, Alan Greenspan at one point. But uh, so once he realized that he wasn't going to, um, you know, that there was only there was only so far he was going to get in music, he wasn't going to you know be like be like you know Duke Ellington or anything. He decided to go into law and. Um, you know, he was a working class kid from from Brooklyn. Um, uh, he went to he went to Brooklyn Law. Um, you know, he he was Jewish, and at that point, Wall Street firms didn't really hire people like that, especially Jewish people. 
but but what happened was the the recruit the recruiting partner at uh, at Mudge liked him and saw something in him and decided to take a chance on him. And so by the time Nixon got there, Garment had had already done pretty well for himself. He was a partner. Um, he had handled some you know some of the firm's biggest uh, biggest litigation matters. But he was bored. Um, he you know he was good he was good at his job. He you know he he. He got he got satisfaction out of it, but he wanted he wanted to do something else. And when he, when he saw Nixon, he he saw his chance to to, to, to do something to, to do something more important with his life. Um, and you know he was someone who was a Democrat. He he admitted to um, to Nixon that he held a he held a fundraiser for Bobby Kennedy in his house at one point, which you would think that would have that would have uh, disqualified him from Nixon's inner circle, you know, at, at once. But 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 Nixon, you know, took a liking to him. I think Nixon. Saw a lot of himself in in, in in Garmin in a sense because you know Garmin had accomplished what you know Garmin had had succeeded in Wall Street. He had um, overcome a humble beginning to you know get the acceptance and get the respect from you know from uh, the well heeled the well heeled folks on Wall Street and become a very powerful person. So I think he kind of he admired that and I think you know he he kind of wanted to accomplish that himself, provided that he didn't become president. I think you know it was a case where they saw. They kind of saw a, a useful, a useful ally in one another. They did, they did develop a very strong uh, rapport for one another. I don't, I don't know if they were, you know, I wouldn't call them, I wouldn't call them best friends. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to gauge just, you know, how Nixon felt about how, how Nixon felt about most people, let alone, you know, uh, let, let alone people that he worked with. Garment even passes on the opportunity to argue before the Supreme Court in '66, giving the case to Nixon because he thought it would benefit Nixon politically. Yeah, I mean, and that and, and that was that was surprising to me. I mean, just just because I, I I didn't know much about the case before I started um, before I started writing this. You know, for most people, I mean, that's 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 like the golden ticket. You know, you get you get a, you get a chance to argue a, a case before the Supreme Court. You do it. I mean, that's that can make your career. That's something that no no lawyer in their right mind would turn down. But Garment figured, okay, well, this will be good for me, but it would be better for for him. Mr. Nixon. Chief Justice, <clears throat> may it please the court. I believe that the fundamental issue here cannot be determined unless there is a judgment with regard to the facts. Uh, there has been discussion. And, and if it's better for him, then it's then it's then it's better for me in the long run because then he'll remember me. He'll 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 take me along to Washington if and when he wins the presidency. And yeah, you know, that's pretty much what happened. I mean, with some with a few bumps in the road and whatnot. But um, and 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 that was sort of the attitude the law firm took with Nixon as a whole. Like, if it's if it's good for Nixon, it's good for the firm. I don't want to get too much into the particulars of the case, but it's worth noting that you know Nixon is representing the family suing a corporation for a violation of privacy law. He went up against uh, a lawyer from Cravath who was representing Life Magazine, and by all accounts, he did a great job on this case. Yeah, I mean the. The consensus um, at the time was that he did a good job. I mean, he he was very inexperienced. Um, he had he had he had he had never argued in a case uh, at the appellate level before. So this was, you know, this was the first time he had ever he had ever he had ever even argued before appellate judges. I mean, I don't I don't know if he did if he did uh, mood appellate arguments in law school, but you know that that might have been the last time he had to do something like that. Um, so you know, the idea that you would <laughs> that you would turn your case over to a guy. Making his debut, um, having never even argued, 
you know, even before circuit court is pretty stunning. But, but Nixon, you know, was a guy that if he put his mind to something, you know, he could, he, you know, he could generally, generally accomplish it. And so he memorized the entire case file. He learned as much as he could about the law. And yeah, I mean, like you said, he, he represented a, um, uh, a married couple that was suing uh, Time Life. Mr. Justice Portis, the reading of the Life article can lead to no conclusion except that those individuals who go to the play, playing at the Barrymore Theater at that time, would see a reenactment of an incident which happened to the Hills. A reading of the article... Uh, but that, that also kind of played into his, his general dislike toward the media and how he felt like he had been victimized by the media over, you know, over the years, treated very unfairly. And so this was kind of like his way of I don't want to say getting revenge on the media, but definitely kind of getting back at them while also kind of casting himself as, as, as a defender for the little guy. Like, you know, he, here, here he is sticking up for, um, sticking up for this poor, uh, this poor family that got, that got, that, 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 that their lives were absolutely ruined by, by time life because they just didn't care about them. And they, you know, they, nothing, because nothing was standing in the way of a good story as far as they were concerned. And so that, you know, that, 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 that was, that would be a very compelling, narrative that, that, that he would want, uh, you, know, you know, if and when he decided to run for president again, which at that point was already a done deal. At, at some point, he commits to running for president. You had mentioned that the firm okayed him hiring a staff, which is interesting. I wonder how they build, right? Like, who, who paid for that? You know, the firm just picked it up. But among the staff that were at Mudge Rose that were not lawyers, right, was Pat Buchanan, William Sapphire. Tell me about this, how this worked. At first, it just started off as like a bare bones operation. Um, you know, he had he had some money. Uh, you know, I mean, the the firm like they would support some of the you know, some, you know, some some members of his staff. You know, they could also use them for uh, for other things. But uh, they, he also had like a um, an outside group that um, you know was was in charge of like raising money for uh, campaign expenses and for uh, various other other things that that he would need over the years. And so you know, they would take care of some of it too. You know, he he decided that he needed. Uh, people to help him um, to help him, you know, ultimately become you know, become you know, become president. So, so the first step in that was really to hire like uh, a, a top-notch writing staff. And so he wanted people that could, you know, uh, quickly research facts for him, draw up speeches and whatnot. So he hired Pat Buchanan, William Sapphire, and um, Ray Price, uh, who were you know, who ended up who, who all, all went on to like you know uh, a much greater fame as well. And you know he had like several lawyers in the firm helping him as well. John Sears was a big, big get for him. Uh, Sears is a guy who he you know, he would also go on to like greater fame and whatnot, uh, uh, running Reagan's campaign in '80. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously they all they all had their had their had their law firm tasks and their le- and their legal practice and whatnot. But whenever like a political issue came up, they would they would help him out, write a speech for him, or you know research issues for him, or research the law to see if they could set up certain. Certain organizations or certain, you know, um, do, do certain types of fundraising and whatnot. So, yeah, they, they definitely came in handy in that sense. Obviously, Nixon Nixon wins. W- what happens to Mudrose after that? How, how does how does the how does his presidency affects the firm? And then, I guess going forward, then how does Watergate affect the firm? At first, it, it, it was very good for the firm. Um, you know, they were they were Richard Nixon's firm. Uh, they were someone. Uh, they, they were they were a firm that um, you know was very well known now they had very powerful friends because uh, you know one person whose name we haven't mentioned was John Mitchell who came to the who came to the firm via merger uh, and he ended up becoming attorney general after running uh, Nixon's presidential campaign uh, so you know you had the president you had the attorney general's two former uh, <laughs> two former name partners of the firm that's pretty good 
<laughs> those are pretty good friends to have if you're, especially if you have a lot of business dealing, if you have a lot of business before the government, if you have a lot of uh, regulatory matters and whatnot. So you know a lot. Of, so a lot of business flowed to the to the to the law firm, especially right after uh, Nixon was elected. Um, it did not work out for the firm because you know obviously their their relationship with Nixon got put under a microscope, um, and so you know they had a couple. They had a couple um, controversies with regards to clients who, um, you know, uh, uh, people questioned whether they were trying to use the firm to to, to get undue influence, um, unduly influence Nixon or Mitchell and whatnot. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it, it was it was a good problem to have. You know, having being perceived for rightly or wrongly as having access to the highest the highest echelons of power it's never a bad thing. But then when Watergate hits, obviously that. Um, that reflects badly on the firm in, in a sense because you know they're associated with Nixon, but also Mitchell had come back to the firm after Nixon's first term had ended. So he was back at the firm and he was being groomed to take over. And he's implicated. Right? Uh, I mean, he, he goes to jail eventually, and so uh, so that that reflects very badly on the firm. Uh, and also, you know, this is this is a generational issue because Nixon, you know, obviously, you know, he, you talk about his politics, talk about his ideology or, you know, or lack thereof. But he represented a certain type of a certain type of person, and young a lot of young lawyers, a lot of, especially people coming out of law school, didn't necessarily want to be uh, didn't necessarily want to be associated with that. So so they found themselves kind of hurt by their association with Nixon because of Watergate, but also hurt like with law students coming out of uh, of school, and so as a result, they kind of fall into fall into another decline, which they they ended up pulling themselves out of. But then uh, in the nineties, they they, uh, they go into another decline, and that takes the firm down. As you know, I looked up the account of the collapse of the New York Times, and there was an article called The Mudge Rose Firm Enters the Tar Pit of Legal History. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good headline. <laughs> yeah, it's a good headline, but it was it, reading this article, it was eerie how much the article could have been about Dewey and LaBeouf. Yeah. You know, it was almost the same article with different numbers and different people. Um, so talk about the, the, I guess, what eventually happened. I know that goes a little bit beyond the scope of your book, but um, what, what had then happens to Mudge Rose? They had, they had a long career after the Watergate that, um, you know, that, so, so, you, so, you can't, so you can't blame that necessarily on, on Nixon. Um, so in, in the early 80s, they actually did really well. Like, uh, like when that, when that, um, when that inaugural AMLAW 50 rankings came out, they were, in the top 50, they're sort of at the bottom of the top 30, well behind, you know, your Cravats and your Baker and McKenzie's and whatnot, but still established as, as one of the top firms in the in, in the country. But a couple things kind of kind of hurt them. Um, earlier, I had mentioned Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell's law firm had been special had been a specialist in municipal bonds. That was one of the reasons why he was so appealing to the firm and also to Nixon as a campaign manager because he had relationships with government officials all over the country. And so when when Marge acquired that firm. You know, the municipal bond practice continued to thrive and continued to do very well to the point where they were probably a little too heavy in that area. And so in the 90s, when the, when the early 90s recession hit, that, that killed the bond market. And so that uh, hurt, their, hurt their overall practice because they were too heavily focused on one area. I and mean, then we saw that with, uh, I think, Factual Profit and some of those other firms that died because of the, um, they were too heavy into the uh, mortgage-backed securities and prior to the, reset, the last recession. So, so that kind of hurt also... It's a lot of the same things that, that plague, plague a lot of firms. You know, they have uh, partners who make a lot of money, uh, but don't do a lot of but don't do a lot. Other partners get jealous. Uh, other people, you know, are like, how come how come this guy's making so much money and, and and not doing anything, but we have to we're bringing all the work and not and not getting as much. So 
you know, one thing that that, that, that article mentioned and whatnot was that, you know, when times are good, money money papers over all these problems. No one no one really cares as long as everyone's getting paid. But when things are bad, that's when you find out, okay, who who, who is it that you can trust and who is it that you, that that you can't. So once things got bad, you know, a lot of partners started started looking for greener pastures. Um, a bunch of people defected. And that's generally how these things happen. I mean, with Dewey, it was the same thing. You know, a bunch of partners defected. All of a sudden, you know, um, <laughs> you know the the, the, part, the partners that aren't that, that aren't leaving them look at that and, and, and sort of think, okay, well, how come how come how come we're still here and they're leaving? So do they know something? So then they start to leave, and then it becomes kind of a kind of a never-ending cycle until there's nothing left. Um, and that that's sort of what happened with 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 Mudge at the end of the day. There, you know, too many people, you know, too many partners left, and they couldn't. And they couldn't. They couldn't replace them, and and um, and once the money dried up, then that that exposed a lot of the underlying issues that had been kind of buried by the firm for a long time. Bringing it back to the book, and I'm I'm holding it in my hand. It's you know 350 pages. <laughs> when you think about the the big takeaway from this, it seems that you know these these years that have been talked about as wilderness years, mm-hmm. in large part are really these years that helped him win the White House because he spent the time at this firm because he made these connections. Is that the way you see it? I, I mean, I definitely think personally it was a very, like, fulfilling time for him as far as, like, getting him ready to run, getting getting, getting him ready to run kind of regardless of where the country was. Absolutely. You know, like, because one problem that had always plagued him in the past, especially in 1960, was that he had always kind of done things himself. He'd always run the campaign on his own. He'd always, like, kind of... Um, you know, kind of, kind of done things by the seat of his pants, taking on like even like small tasks, but then also, you know, like micromanaging things, and and then just kind of really wearing himself out at the end. Um, I mean, like in, in '60, a big reason why he lost was because, you know, he, he insisted on campaigning in all 50 states. Like, who does that? You know, I mean, no nobody campaigns in all 50 states. So going to the firm kind of allowed him to kind of delegate more, and he finally he finally had people around him that understood, you know, understood politics the way he did. But also understood how to sell himself. So as far as like helping him, putting him in a position of course to where he could run again, absolutely, the firm probably played uh, a vital role. Thanks to Victor Lee for being our guest. His book is Nixon in New York, How Wall Street Helped Richard Nixon Win the White House. For more news and information about the legal industry and the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bloomberglaw.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow me on Twitter at joshblockNYC. Follow Victor Lee at victorlee2000. Lee is spelled L-I. We'll be back soon with a new podcast. Subscribe to make sure that you don't miss it. The Big Law Business Podcast is brought to you by Epic. Stay ahead of the curve with Epic. Gain more traction for the critical legal tasks in front of you today and those just around the corner. Epic delivers expert matter handling along with the accuracy and speed you rely on to outperform your competition. Epic is a global leader in the legal services industry. Epic subject matter experts and technologies create efficiency through expertise and deliver confidence to high-performing clients around the world. Learn more at epicglobal.com. That's E-P-I-Q global.com.